0: My opinion is technology is just like fabric. When I used to be a punk kid in Switzerland, I used to go to the fabric store and pick the right fabric for the right function and then cut it into something that I wanted it to be. It's the same with technology. We pick sensors, we pick AI to go with those sensors, and we we form it into the right function, the right delivery.
1: You are listening to Change Lab. Conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, President of Art Center College of Design. Swiss-born entrepreneur and Art center alum Yves Bahar is the design world's reigning rock star. In the nearly two decades since founding his industrial design and branding firm Fuse Project, Bahar has become a leading force in establishing design's crucial role in how technology functions in our lives. Centrally important to Fuse Project's business model is a deep commitment to social good. Partnering with other nonprofits, Bihar and his team have produced a number of groundbreaking products. Most famous is One Laptop Per Child, a project designed to provide low-cost portable computers to millions of children around the world. Similarly, the initiative See Better to Learn Better, an endeavor in Mexico that supplies eyeglasses to children in need, is another of Bahar's most impressive achievements. I met up with Eve in San Francisco a few weeks ago. We had a great conversation that explored his most innovative products, his inclination to question conventional wisdom about innovation, and his sense of how the DIY punk movement fostered his passion for making and disruption. I'd like to begin, actually, by exploration of your background and getting to know you a sure. little bit more. And one of the things that I, I've heard you say and that I've read is back in your in Switzerland days, you had decided that you wanted to be a designer sometime in your teens, mm-hmm. but that maybe
0: before that or simultaneous with that, you wanted to be a writer. When I was um, early teen, I really got into science fiction and um, dramatic fiction in general. I really loved uh, reading books. And I had a certain... Talent for writing. I um, I felt I had um, I had been gifted with imagination, and I translated that through um, through put it, putting words on paper. And I was also um, very involved in the sort of punk movement, um, making things, finding your own ways outside of the mainstream to express yourself. To you know, do music, to make clothing, to build furniture, and that, that was sort of my other passion.
1: And by the way, what was your first language?
0: French. French. Okay. French is my first so you're language. So writing, you're writing in French then? Yes. Right. I was writing in French then. Um, but this, this idea of imagination for me, I, I, you know, my parents didn't know what design was. My family was not involved in the arts. So imagination always translated in, in writing. But I discovered, you know, making was also a passion of mine Mm. uh, and design became my focus. I wanted to make more things and I realized that I could tell stories through the objects or through the clothes and the furniture that I was also building, that they had meaning and that meaning was maybe slightly less direct than um, uh, words on paper but still there. There they, they had a there was a point of view, there was a set of ideas, there may have been memories involved, there maybe were innovative in the way that they were presenting a function or and expressing it. And I felt suddenly I was communicating my imagination through making, through mm. product making.
1: And in just given what, how you just expressed yourself, were you also writing poetry or was it all short stories?
0: I was, I was interested in writing fiction, some poems, but, but mostly fiction, mostly uh, adventures and imaginary worlds and places.
1: Would you characterize your work as poetic? Only because of the way you were just talking about it. There seemed to be a way in which one could unpack the various dimensions of it that exist in a kind of dynamic that's interesting.
0: Now that you sort of bring up that aspect of it, um, there's definitely ways to bring people around um, a function or a way a product or an experience experience unfolds itself. Um, there are ways to bring people around it that are um, maybe more poetic, more about using emotions, more about, about uh, suggesting things, more mm-hmm. about addressing them in ways mm-hmm. that uh speaks to them personally mm-hmm. and i think that's maybe what poetry does it connects in a human way and I, that's what i believe design should do right. it, it should always connect in a human way first. right and it brings something inside of you alive right i mean that's something that i often say is is if you treat your customers you know as smart and intelligent um you they will get something different out of the experience rather than to be brought about and treated, you know, in a way that, that um, may be less suggestive and less um, um, less human, you know, sort yeah, treating yeah. them like customers rather than treating them like human yeah, beings. Yeah, yeah.
1: I want to go back, though, to who you were as a child a little bit more. The stories that a lot of our Art Center alum in particular tell of who they were as kids and the kind of creative spirit that they carried – is always fascinating to me so the question is a little different from the one I asked earlier and it's more to the point of what do you remember about yourself as as a creative
0: child what do you what do you remember about your own creative spirit as a child I think what I remember from being a kid in Switzerland is that Switzerland was very constraining um, you were expected to act and to dress and to have a very kind of narrow set of aspirations in many ways. So part of, part of the way I felt was there must be a different way. There must be mm. a way that isn't just self-contained within the mountains that surrounded me at the time, uh, the Alps, essentially. There must be a way to see beyond just a, a culture that felt set in its ways. Um, so there was definitely a, a bit of a revolt, um, there was also uh, a lot of romanticizing in a way uh, of what else, you know, what else I could do, what else it could be. Um, and I really poured myself um, heart and soul into um, into making, into drawing. I wasn't particularly good at it. Um, when I started, in you know, drawing more intensely, maybe when I was 12, 13, 14, my friends were very talented. They had much more innate drawing skills. They were good craftsmen. They were, um, they were far ahead of me. And it took just a lot of work. It took from the age of, I would say, 15, 16 to the age of 24, 25, a good like, 9, 10 years for me to apply myself every single day. And I came out at age 24, 25 as a really good draftsman. I, I really could express all kinds of different ideas really, really quickly. As a product but of hard work and grit, though, right? As a, as a product of hard work and grit more than a product of talent or simply having been educated in the craft. I wasn't educated in the craft. But I, I do remember that it seemed like my only chance, like my only exit, my only opportunity that I could, um, that, that I could pursue. So it, it, it required a lot of belief a lot of self you know, conviction and confidence that I would get there right. because it, it wasn't obvious. There wasn't um, a path, a clear path. There were no industrial design schools in uh, my region, in my area um, at the time, until Art Center opened a campus in Bavet, uh, nearby yeah. in Vive. Yeah. And um, there, was no, there were no practitioners really of design. There was maybe a couple of small uh, shops um, that were very good, but seemed to be very inaccessible you know out of out of the thousands and thousands of kids in the region how could I get to you know be part of the three jobs that existed in my in that field? So I, I really I, it, it was really sort of a complete dedication and focus to that craft and to making it in, in, in a space that, nobody around me could really help me with. I want to um, make sure that the listeners of this podcast can familiarize
1: themselves with a lot of your work. And so I thought it would be really interesting to just get you to speak sure. for a few sentences on on a few of these projects, just to give people mm-hmm. a sense of the extraordinary work that you've done. And if I could ask you just to speak for a few minutes on uh, uh, One Laptop Per Child, and mm-hmm. despite how much has been covered, it's an endlessly interesting story.
0: Well, the One Laptop Per Child was really a an incredible project for me, but it was more than a project. It became a whole different way of seeing the world. Um, It became a way of applying a lot of what I believed, which is design really is universal. Design should or does touch uh, everyone all around the world. But at the time when we started working on the One Laptop a Child, which is designing the laptop, um, for the developing world um, at a very low price point about a hundred dollars that would be given away at the time when I started there was very little to no practice of design for the developing world. Um, you know design was seen as a bit of luxury uh, was seen as um, a decorative kind of fancy element but you know not really one that would, uh, save lives or bring education to um, mm. to uh, to millions of kids. It was an incredible um, project at a time when technology was um, growing in the um, in the sort of hearts and minds of everyone. At a time when technology was becoming uh, something that we would carry around that we had in our homes, and Nicholas Negroponte in the MIT Media Lab said, "Well." Um, this, is, this is a technology, you know, the right to education is something that should really go to everyone. Right. And so it was a very contradictory um, step that they were taking. And that wasn't particularly supported by the big uh, computer industry, which um, I was formed in by, um, you know, after I worked in Silicon Valley for a few years. Um, and so we became contrarians in the field. And how yes. many are how many have been distributed? About three million laptops have wow. been distributed um, around the world. At a hundred dollars each. The price point ended up being closer to one hundred and fifty dollars, uh-huh. uh, but um, it was still affordable, especially when one thinks about five year typical of a five year use uh, for a child. But some countries had a hundred percent distribution, like Uruguay. Uh, countries like Peru had a million laptops in the hands of kids, so it was a, a, a tremendous deployment, and it was really the first time that computers uh, were localized. Um, we could change a keyboard easily. The keyboard was made out of a single uh, piece of rubber, so one could sil- uh, silk screen a different language, um, you know, on a keyboard, for example. And so it was localized um, both through the software and through the hardware. Um, and always adapted to the culture and um, the teachings of of the region.
1: Great. And for our listeners who are interested, they can Google one laptop per child, and and they can can see the visuals of it.
0: Another project for kids to see better to learn better? See Better to Learn Better is a Mexican program of eyeglasses, corrective eyeglasses distribution in Mexico. When we started working with them, they were importing eyeglasses from China which um, the kids really didn't like because they had a very standard look. They were thick and heavy, and, um, and all the children were getting exactly the same eyeglasses. And what the organization realized that, um, they, is that they could make better eyeglasses that were adapted to the children, um, to their morphology, to their age, to their taste, and they could make them cheaper by making them local in Mexico. So, we helped the factory vertically integrate both the, f- the design of the, um, and the manufacturing of the frames, but also of the lenses themselves. Mm. So, within the same factory, they made lenses and uh, frames and were able to assemble them custom for every child that they um And the frames were made them.
1: of a special material, right? That was particularly durable?
0: The frames were made out of a actually a Swiss material called grillamid oh. which is um, has a distortion co- quotient that's very high, which means simply that you can bend them almost in every direction and they won't break, right. which is important if one considers the life of children in school. Right, right, right. Um, but what was incredible is, you know, the, the glasses turned out, um, you know, really, uh, really as intended, meaning um, the kids were able to choose different colors for different parts of the glasses. And when they would receive them, um, they even had their names engraved in the, um, in the temple. And when they received them, they, they started running around. I went to some of the distributions. They started running around saying, I am unique, I am unique. And this is the same thing we realized with the one laptop per child. The realization that somebody made something for you no matter what your circumstances are, if you're poor, um, if, you're, if, you, if you have a special need, such as eyeglasses, um, really completely changes their, the way that they see the world. Eve is not a man who cares much for trivial gadgets.
1: His commitment to socially innovative design means that every project he undertakes must address real human need. From his concept for Samsung's The Frame, a smart television that transforms into a framed work of art, to his design for the Snoo Smart Crib, which reliably rocks babies to sleep, Bahar's characteristic approach is one that focuses on the human element first. He is concerned always with providing sustainable solutions that will make a difference.
0: Moving to more recent projects, the Aura-powered suit. So in the last few years, I've been very involved in projects that use robotics, um, that use AI, um, and specifically for communities that, uh, in my opinion, need it the most. Um, Babies and children, uh, the elderly. And one of the latest projects is called the Aura-powered suit, which um, was designed for a startup named Superflex. It's an offshoot of SRI. SRI is one of the most innovative labs that have brought us a lot of the technologies that we have today, including Siri. And this suit is what I call muscle 2.0, which allows the elderly to be able to stand up and move around and stay upright. Um, So it has motors, it has sensors, um, it has batteries, which are integrated in an undergarment. So rather than building something that's an exoskeleton that mm-hmm. makes it look like you need help, that makes it look like, um, which has been typical with these kinds of projects to date, right? Yes. Yeah, so today, it's, uh, um, exoskeletons exist, and they, you know, they tend to be very visible and to advertise, you know, the condition that you right. may have. You know, what Superflex does, it takes a, a different view, which is that your clothing could be powered, and um, through that power, um, we help. Uh, people get up and stand down and, um, or stay upright and have conversations and really stay in the world. And what
1: is the technology? Is it a, a kind of stimulation to the muscles that comes from the, the suit? What is the, what, what's actually going on?
0: What's going on is actually really simple. We have cables um, that are following uh, your muscles, lumbar muscles, back muscles, uh, thigh. And those cables are tensioned or released by motors uh, mm-hmm. that are attached mm-hmm. um, uh, to, to to the garments themselves, right. therefore helping motions and mobility. And we can deliver as much as 80% power needed, for example, to get up.
1: Wow. All right, one more. You know, my, my kids haven't been infants for a long time. They're in their 20s now, but, mm-hmm. uh, boy, I could have used a lot of help. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm interested in the Snoo Smart Sleeper. Yeah. Um, and if you could talk about sure. what that is and what you're trying to do with that.
0: The Snoo Smart Sleeper is essentially a robot that takes care of your baby. But when I say that, and I said that for about five years while we were working on it, um, people get scared. Their impression is, oh, it must be some articulated, humanoid-like robot that's going to hold my baby for me. Um, some mechanical it, monster that's going to hold my Exactly. Some, some Hollywood version. <laughs> and um, it, it couldn't be further further away from that. Um, it's a beautiful bassinet and it starts to move, uh, it starts to deliver certain reflexes that help babies stay asleep. Uh, and by doing so, we uh, help the parents uh, get, get a little more sleep. Lack of sleep uh, for parents, for, for new parents is actually a huge issue. There's Tell me about health, it. Uh, health issues, yeah. um, you know, um, too many visits to the doctors, postpartum, um, there's just um, it, it's it, it is actually a, a big health uh, national health issue, and Dr. Harvey Karp, with whom I worked on um, on the Snoo, the happiest baby Snoo, uh, really created the most important um, movement ar- around how to take care of babies and and their sleep. And what this what Snoo does is essentially deliver. Uh, some of the reflexes that will keep babies asleep or help them fall asleep.
1: Well, I can't, of course, um, none of us can speak for the experience of the infant, but I can certainly speak from the experience of a parent who who had moments of desperation for, for more sleep. And
0: Well, I've tested know. those on my babies. And? <laughs> Having had about six years of um, development and different types of prototypes, It got improved over time, and it really, really works. It's um, it's incredible.
1: Wow. It's revolutionary, really. I
0: mean, it's amazing.
1: I mean, these are all such beautiful stories. And if you wanted to extrapolate from those specific examples that we just covered a couple of key principles about Mm -hmm. your work or how you think about the work or how you engage with, as you reference so much, the human element in the work that you do, I just wanted to open that up to Mm -hmm. you.
0: A lot of what binds this work together for me is this idea that, um, you know, really design starts with the human with a human factor. Um, it really starts with telling a story. Sometimes that, you know, can be difficult. How do you tell parents that um, they can get help through a robot? How do you deliver a kind of function such as a physical function in the case of Superflex and the aura suit? How do you come into people's lives with at the needs level, but you do so in a way that really fits within their lives. That doesn't disrupt their environment. Um, that doesn't disrupt how they dress or their decor in their home. Um, in fact, that enhances it. Mm. And consumers want it all. They want the function. They want to purchase something from the right company with the right ideas that treats them in the right way. Um, they want beauty. How do we deliver on all these different <laughs> metrics? Mm-hmm. Um, is is um, really part of what makes this this job challenging, but also incredibly rewarding? I read recently a
1: piece that you spoke of the you know, certain principles of design at mm-hmm. the ADO Design Festival in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and one of the things I was r- really interested in was how you're wrestling with certain kinds of ethical or moral issues that are associated, particularly with AI, with Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, with robotics. Tell me what your questions are. I mean, the the dilemmas, the conundrum, even with SNU, one can think about, Mm -hmm. you know, that the mother or the father is no longer holding the baby. There's something else that's holding the baby, and one can explore what that might mean. It does present us with certain moral conundrum, doesn't it not?
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I do think that any new medium brings up ethical and moral issues and uh, challenges designers, engineers, manufacturers in some ways. You know, I wonder if, um, if we're not taking enough time to consider those, mm. um, to explore those. And uh, I never wanted, personally, I never wanted to create principles of design, but this, these new tools that have been a part of my studio... Um, at least for the last 15 plus years, uh, tools of technology, tools of AI, smart environments, robotics. I realized that they are essentially changing the character of the objects around us. Um, You know, the the, the principles that Dieter Rams or uh, George Nelson did set out for designers um, are great, but they're not considering new aspects that these technologies mm-hmm. um, right. are, are are creating, right. and so I really felt it was important to start to think about um, new principles of design in this era of AI, robotics, and smart environments. Um, and that you know that I'm not saying that they're set in stone. In fact, I'm I'm always um, uh, the first one to point at the fact that this is new, and um, you know those principles probably will, will evolve over time. Well, I applaud you hugely for asking the question.
1: I think it's absolutely imperative that we do. Is there a specific example of
0: a dilemma that you've wrestled with, especially concerning something like AI, I think? Mm-hmm. I wrestle with the exact same questions, whether it's in my everyday life or in my professional life. You know, I I have a family life, and I don't like the fact that I'm constantly distracted by technology. At the same time, I recognize that We're not going to give up the information that technology affords us. This has become part of our lives, and we're, for the most part, better for it. But in my home environment and in other places, um, I don't want technology to take over my life. I don't want it to distract me from the interactions with other humans. I don't want it to be... Something that that uh, sort of a, an element that takes me away from my humanity. For example, I mean, some of the principles um, are there around, um, you know, serving certain needs without uh, creating emotional dependency. Um, while we solve certain certain needs for parents or for the elderly, um, I think that we also want to make sure that the technology stays uh, independent of. Um, the emotional... Um, or doesn't eclipse the human touch or the, exactly. the human interaction or the engagement. Exactly. That, right. um, so, so, you know, it's, it's very easy to render things to be very cute and very human-like um, or, or animal-like. It's something that um, other industries have done. Um, but I do, I do think for us designers... It's much more important to to render the right emotional relationship between user and um, and product and AI, but not to to um, to render people dependent on it. For example, in a specific way, I'm also interested in your sense of how
1: AI grows as you use it and right. gathers up information. Right. So this is
0: something that I've, which is had. both wonderful and terrifying. Exactly. Well, this is a first row experience for me um in the last um, six or seven years Um, when i worked on the jambox you know we were able a year after the first jambox jambox launched we were able to deliver um, through software better sound and better battery life and people always assume that a speaker is a speaker is a speaker it's going to be just as good as the mechanical parts are Um, but suddenly we had optimized the software and we gave that away for free and people were like, oh, wow, I've, you know, longer battery life and better sound, more sound, louder sound. Mm-hmm. That seems extraordinary just coming simply from the software. Um, so the fact that products today are evolving and changing and getting better over time and, ad- and adapting to us over time is great, I think. it's uh, it's um, it, it really creates more longevity um, and less of a, of a um, sort of you know, cultural consumption around these products. At the same time, um, you know, how products evolve and how they're uh, serving our needs uh, over time also has to be considered um, and has to be sort of a positive. Um, you wouldn't want to have a product that helps you with a certain task for a while and then uh, takes you in a completely different direction um, or or distracts you from, from that original task for other reasons, which could be commercial uh, and others. So that's certainly one of the advantages of technology, but what happens to those smart products around you over time is something to be considered. Right,
1: and I suppose you can understand it on different levels too, um, and lots of books are being written about this too, about how technology is learning about us and responding to and gathering data in a very specific kind of way mm-hmm. on the huge corporate level and on the, sm- the small device level too, right? Mm-hmm. And whether or not that goes to the very fear you were articulating earlier about the replacement of the human element is mm-hmm. the technology gathering
0: the data, right? Yeah, I, I'm really of two minds there because on the one hand, I want to get people off their screens. Um, I, you know, Controlling the world around me, for example, in my home life um, through my screen, whether it's sound, or lighting, or other automation, or, th- or the door, my door lock, um, right. is um, really distracting from the environment I'm in. You know, every time I pull out my phone out of my pocket, my kids accuse me of texting. Uh, but I'm not texting, I'm just you know, sending somebody a key so they can come to the house, or I'm changing the music. Um, so getting people off that type of interaction is great, and that means that we need to predict human behavior. And to predict human behavior, we need those 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 technologies. At the same time, you know humans, the the human choice and human decision making should never be replaced by an AI. Right. Um, and so we're we're in between these two notions: one utopian, the other one dystopian. Um, we have we have to navigate and deliver the right products and the right culture within those companies so 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 that continues to be the case over time Well
1: I applaud your leadership in asking the questions and I think that you know as president of an art and design college I am always encouraging that that kind of critical sensibility be brought mm-hmm. to the work we're doing lest we simply be caught up in the wonder of the magic without understanding how it does impact us as human beings
0: Absolutely I mean it's it's so interesting to me that you know it's simp- those are simply tools I mean technology for me is just a tool. People seem to look at technology as if it's something that's imposed upon them or some sort of liberator of, uh, you know, the the views on technology tend to be extreme, positive and negative. Um, But my opinion is technology is just like fabric. When I used to be a punk kid in Switzerland, I used to go to the fabric store and pick um, the right fabric for the right function, the right thread count, uh, the right look and feel, um, and then cut it into something that I want it to be, whether it's a pillow or whether it's a, a, you know, a jacket or yeah. a t-shirt. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the same with technology. We pick sensors. We pick AI to go with those sensors. We, we, um, and, and we, we form it into, um, into the right function, the right delivery. Um, i th- I think that 's the way we should see it as uh, that we we are the master of it rather than the other way around,
1: right, though it can master us, and that 's what you're raising I think that's so important. there is mm-hmm. a dark side, it can distract it can pull us out of our lives mm-hmm.
0: absolutely and I think your warning is really well taken and and you know my struggle with with technology in general is. Expressed directly in the work that I do, whether it's companies I work with and I guide them towards certain projects, or companies that I start. Um, one recent example is um, is Samsung and Samsung the Frame, which is a new type of screen. Um, you could call it a TV because you can use it, it like as a TV. Looks like a TV. Looks like a monitor. It looks right? like it looks like a TV, um, unless there's art on it, and then you have absolutely no idea that it's a TV. So it's a it television. Just looks like a framed piece of art. Exactly, it's 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 hiding in plain sight. But the way I looked mm-hmm. at it was, well, we've had you know fifty, sixty plus years of television as a technology, whether as a tube or as a flat screen, as a curved screen, it doesn't matter. Um, that always looks black when it's off, and it takes up room in my life. You know, it, it's visual clutter. It's people live in smaller and smaller environments, and they tend to want to have. Um, their own taste, and you know, on, on 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 the wall, and you have this piece of technology that's sitting there, black, like a void. And the um, this is this was initiated by our studio. We have a we have a long term um, you know relationship with, with Samsung, where you know we come up with ideas, and we go execute it. You know, we go execute them uh, with them. But it required onboarding certain sensors on the television, specifically to dim the images so they don't look backlit. Uh, and the result is extraordinary. I have people coming into my home, I have people coming into my office, and looking around and saying, how great, there's mm. no TV here. All you have is art. They don't even realize that what's on the wall is a good piece from an artist from you can pick from all around the world. Um, there are collections joining the platform and museums joining a platform, but it's it's a, new, it's a new era.
1: I want to change gears a little bit. You referenced earlier, and I've read about your admiration for people like Charles Eames and Saul Bass and George Nelson, and, mm-hmm. and you said about them, and I
0: quote, that they are better thinkers because they were makers. What do you mean by that? Well, that was a little bit of a swipe towards design thinking, to be honest with you. <laughs>
1: Okay.
0: Um, what it's, I meant- something, it's something that I'm working on that I'm going to pursue now
1: that I'm, I'm very interested in, actually. I, I thought it was a very provocative statement, actually.
0: You know, the design field goes through trends, and um, different business models exist around the design field. What I always wanted to be was a maker and a thinker at the same time. And making forces you to think and vice versa. Um, as you spend more time with the people you're trying to serve through your work, as you spend more time in business, as you spend more time doing research and strategy, which we all do at Fuse Project, um, you end up putting more thought into, into your work. And so I think it's dangerous to sort of separate the two. It's dangerous to separate the notion that thinking and strategy is a different type of practice or is separated from making. Um, and that's, in fact, why... 18 18 years ago I founded fuse project the definition of fuse project is to fuse different disciplines at the service of an idea hopefully a big idea but without that fusing I don't think any you know I don't think the work would have been the same you know without having colleagues and friends who are brilliant strategists and uh, brilliant at branding and brilliant at finance and um, you know I don't think I don't think we would have being able to do this kind of work my own research has
1: um, recently been all about exploring how we know things through making them mm-hmm. not as a better way to know things or an only way to know things but right. that we as we make and as we create we discover we know things about what it is that we want to make and right. the product or the thing or the object hmm But we also know about ourselves, too, in a different kind of way, right? That we access parts of ourselves and learn about ourselves as makers that we wouldn't be able to access otherwise. Mm -hmm. My favorite quote on that is Joan Didion, who said, I'd have no reason to write if I could
0: access my thoughts in any other way. Mm -hmm. Does that notion make sense to you? It does make sense, and it's something that I practice every single day. If it wasn't for drawing the ideas down on paper, which which is still the best medium because that's how you, you... You can put the most amount of ideas in the shortest amount of time in this way. And they're interpretations, meaning they're not perfect. They're, not, they're representing ideas rather than executions. And so that remains um, a core way of how we work. It's also great because it gets you to get all the bad ideas out of your brain. Um, I think people have... you know It's funny when you talk to people who are, aren't designers... They will tell you, well, you know, I've had this idea for 20 years about how this could be made better or how this or about this new project or this new product. And you're like, well, if you had drawn it up, you would have realized very quickly that it's not such a good one. Mm-hmm. And part of drawing for me is expelling out of my brain all the bad ideas so that I can get to the good ones. Because as you draw these things down, it, it makes you realize, oh, there must be something better or this is an issue or this is a problem um, that I can resolve with that next sketch, with that next iteration. So prototyping through drawing, through uh, making quick prototypes, um, putting them out on paper and quite often putting, putting them away um, is the best way to, to learn about what, what the next step is.
1: What do you begin with? Before you actually start the drawing, what do you begin with? Is it a notion? Is it an idea? Is it a vision? What is it that you begin with that starts the process?
0: I always begin with, with something else than, I would say, uh, an aesthetic um, or, a, or, or a solution. Um, it's an idea, it's a notion, it's a vision. It's one of these three things. Um, I call it a big idea. And um, it can come from insight, personal insight or insight that's been researched. It can come from observation. It can come from intuition, uh, from past experiences, having designed some of these things before. Um, you know, it's an aha moment, as, um, as, as we sometimes call it in the office. And without that, you're, you're kind of lost. You know, you're just walking aimlessly through, you know, the possibilities um that really, you know, for me, the starting with a big idea allows, and I think that's, you know, a l- little bit why some of the projects we've worked on are, are, are successful. It's because it allows us to go deeper in a specific fashion uh, rather than exploring a world of different types of ideas and possible directions. If you have an intuition or a direction or an idea that you really truly believe in. It allows you to go deep into that and to drill you know deeper and deeper in there and so if you have a thousand or you know a hundred or ten hours uh, to solve a problem you will go a lot further i believe in solving um this this project this opportunity Um, than than if you're just trying a dozen different possibilities. I get that the drawing and the design process and the
1: making of the thing gets you deeper into a a deeper, better, more nuanced idea. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have to draw into an idea? Do you ever have to make into something that is just a vague notion or a question or even uncertainty, but Mm -hmm. you're compelled to do it because something's driving you to do it and you make it so you can find it
0: believe me i don't always have the idea when i start it it, i'm lucky when i do and it happens once in a while and it's a wonderful feeling to already know what needs to get done before you start but it also happens that sometimes you're giving an, an opportunity or there's a space you're interested in and you just can't find it and it's extremely frustrating and and it's very much part of what the creative process is about. Is this frustration, this sort of you sort of deprecate yourself because you don't have the idea because it's not there, and uh, the only way to go about it is to is to make, to try, to prototype, um, to to you know keep putting stuff on paper until it comes. And the brain the brain is extraordinary. Once you ask a question from the brain. It will eventually enter it. Mm-hmm. You know the intensity that gets you to not know and to con- to search and to be you know sometimes frustrated with that also creates a sense of urgency for your brain to work on it maybe a little harder than 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 other problems. Um, and so the idea comes. I mean, whether it's the next morning, whether it's a week later or a month later, you know your brain's working on it. And it happens yeah. to me all the time, and yeah. and really. The idea can show up while I'm driving, while I'm in a shower, while I'm uh, sleeping, while I'm having a conversation, and suddenly I'm like, oh, wait a second. You've got to capture it. You know, I, I just have to go write this down. I just have to go do this quick right, sketch. Right, right,
1: right. You know, it's interesting as you speak, I'm trying to get definition around this, but we tend to think of artists and designers as having, sort of holding great vision and working to manifest that vision, when in fact often not always it's like you describe it you know and it's it's uh, the metaphor that comes to mind is that making is not so much you know divine in- inspiration as it is uh, natural selection right that you create mm-hmm. a lot of ideas along the way you draw them out or you write them out mm-hmm. or whatever your medium and the best ones and the strongest ones tend to survive and become become yep. the thing you know
0: that that's certainly true i would i would say an uh, an important element is to be to be tolerant about, you know, the ideas that are good and the ideas that are not so good that you come up with, and to let some some natural selection happen, um, but but to really sort of um, believe in those in that top idea and that top thing you want to do, believe in yourself, and go out and try it and build it because more often than not, people will be resistant to change. They will be resistant to the uniqueness or the difference that separates your idea from what's already out there. Um, And uh, part of it is to love the idea so much that, you know, the enthusiasm is visible um, is something that that people can feel and people can perceive. So I think it, there's a lot of love in that top idea. Yeah, there's, there's a lot, lot of there's,
1: there, and there's a lot of wisdom there, Eve. I, I, and 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 yet, for me, I'm also interested in when that idea is not really known to us
0: until we make it. I agree. For example, in the in the case of the frame uh, for Samsung, the idea was an interface, essentially. I, I wondered how would it would look like if it automatically went from when I turn off the TV, if it automatically went back to art how would that look that moment where it goes from one to the next needed to be seamless and beautiful and not require any intervention not require me to pick up the remote or to 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 instruct it to do so but that that was an inspiration that um, I had to go through dozens and dozens of user experience mock-ups of uh, graphic you know UI UX mock-ups until until it was about right I'm really interested in how you talk about change and the kind of change you create in the world.
1: We talk a lot at Art Center about influencing change and see mm-hmm. it as core to our educational mission. And I'm interested in how you think about change, how you affect change in the world. I mean, think, I think a lot of our mm-hmm. conversation has given evidence that the change you create is remarkable, but it's more of a kind of your own personal sense of that and how you look at it and how it becomes part of the work that you do or the way you think about your work?
0: Well, I see it in two ways. I see change in two ways. I see it as an opportunity to simply do what I love, which is showing new ways, new directions. But I also see it as a huge responsibility. I think that new technologies, I think that new sociological needs, uh, societal needs, all those can be ruined by bad design. If electric power, for example, or electric cars come about, and you do a bad job at it, which happened in the past, it takes 10, 20 years to, you know, for, for that industry to, to, to come back. Mm. You know, if it's positioned in the wrong way, if it's addressing the wrong clientele, if it's ugly, you know, it, just, it, it takes a really long time. And so I think as a designer, we have the power to make or break um, new industries and new technologies, um, and I think it's it's a it's a it's a key responsibility. If those opportunities go away, people people go unconvinced and and turn their backs on um, on things that are badly designed. So I'm excited because my principle is that simply design accelerates the adoption of new ideas, um, and we live in an era where people are open to new ideas. It's an extraordinary era. Um, people actually are interested in the next thing, how it works. And they're also very critical of it. So it has to be done right. Um, there's really no room for you know, a bad business or a bad technology. They go away very, very quickly. Right, right. And if you needed to give one art and design
1: college president some advice on what his students ought to focus on at this point, given where technology is leading us, given mm-hmm. this horizon of change that you just outlined, is it products? Is it augmented reality? Is it soft goods? Is it wearables? Is it autonomous cars? Is it all of the above?
0: I think experience is a key word. I think experience cuts through the noise, cuts through the annoyances, uh, the friction, as we call it, um, and also creates more, you know, better adoption um, of, of anything, whether it's software and hardware. And experience, you know, really comes across everything. If, if, you know, the experience is your brand. So, um, you know, the way the naming of your company, the, the what it stands for, its uh, culture, you know, can't be good if the experience that you're delivering software, hardware, um, or services is, is a bad one. But I, I, think, I think the experience is something that we can all work around, uh, we can all work on. Whether you're a graphic designer, whether you're um, a technologist, whether you're an industrial designer and a transportation designer, um, I would encourage you know everyone to really think about the experience. If you're building a car, it's not just the way it looks on the outside. That's important. But what is this new experience? How are you going to deliver something new that I can be excited about? Which needs to be the the design process for the autonomous
1: vehicles right that experience that question mm-hmm. about experience that you're raising it needs to be at the center of that
0: and it is. absolutely it's an opportunity and, yeah. because the, the experience of cars hasn't changed that much and now there's an opportunity to to make that experience completely new mm-hmm. um but it's you know i think experience is the one thing that that uh, can't be bad anymore i mean it used to be you could sell people on a product and the experience could be average and it would still do well because people didn't talk, because reviews weren't there, because the internet wasn't around to register all the complaints. Um, um, but today, um, if you're delivering a good experience, you're probably doing decent design.
1: Well, I'll certainly say that one thing that's great for the students at Art Center is to be able to be inspired by somebody like you um, and the the things that we've covered today, definitely the innate talent, but also the grit and the determination, mm-hmm. the reach, the care, the social impact that you care about creating, the way in which you engage with the world, how you naturally complicate your own process by asking these really wonderful and important questions about human experience, and that it's not all straightforward and to push these ideas to understand and have a sense of where technology is going and the difference it makes in our lives, but not just to get dazzled by the Mm -hmm. magic of it. I think all of that is uh, incredibly inspiring. It certainly has been for me today listening to you, and I, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. Thank you. I hope you enjoy this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of ArtCenter, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening.